Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. Sleep. Sleep's a really interesting subject. We've had an episode or so um, on this topic before, and I'm sure we're going to have many more. But did you know that sleep was very closely correlated to your vitamin D levels? My guest this week is Dr. Stasha Gomenak, who has done some research work that just blows my socks off, and I can't wait to share it with you. She received her degree in biochemistry from UC Santa Barbara and her medical degree at Baylor College. She chose to specialize in neurology at Harvard and the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She also completed a fellowship training in clinical neuropsychology at Harvard, physiology, I apologize, neurophysiology at Harvard. Since 2004, her focus has been the treatment of neurological illness through the repair of sleep. In 2012, she published the first paper linking vitamin D deficiency to the epidemic of sleep disorders. In 2016, she published how the abnormal intestinal microbiome is also related to sleep disorders and how a simple regimen called right sleep can repair a whole range of sleep disorders from insomnia to apnea. She retired from clinical practice in 2016 and now teaches other clinicians the right sleep protocol and also coaches individuals. Stasha, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Tatiana, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be on your program. Thank you. Uh, the, the joy is all mine. I just love the way that you put this story together. In my experience of science and research, these elegant things that just fit together simply and beautifully, even within their complexity, are often the things that are absolutely right, because nature doesn't mess around. She knows what she's doing. So why don't you lead us right back to the beginning of this story? What got you as a neurologist interested in sleep? Um, I was dragged there by my patients. And actually, this whole story is about learning that your patients can lead you into really good places, that they ask important questions and uh, that we should have an open mind. And that was as much uh, a learning process for me as the rest. So with that as a preface, it was one of my headache patients who had stayed with me for two years, taken the four medicines that I'd given her for daily prevention. They didn't work, and she demanded a sleep study. And she said, I snore like a train. My husband thinks I have sleep apnea. And I said, I don't know anything about that. And no, I won't do a sleep study. And she insisted, so I ended up doing it. And that was in 2005. She put on a CPAP mask. She was young, healthy, didn't have a fat neck. Uh, she wasn't obese and she had terrible sleep apnea and she put, and more importantly, she put on a CPAP mask and her headaches went away in three weeks. And I was totally blown away by that. It was such a different way of thinking about daily headache. And I had about half of my practice in daily headaches. So that's about a thousand people. Most of them are young, healthy females. The only medical issues they've had are the things that young, healthy females get after they have babies. Uh, so I start doing sleep studies because one, daily headache suffers. I've been doing daily headache for at least 20 years before that. And everything that I found that worked would usually wear off in time. So they're frustrated. I'm frustrated. If I can find another treatment parameter that we might be able to follow, one, how do I tell if they have a sleep disorder? Two, so I've learned a lot about asking the right questions. 
Two, what if I can do a sleep study and then treat them with this torture device and their headaches go away? Most of them, even though their head hurts, so a lot of them say, these are people who have daily headache for 20 years. I mean, they're, they're desperate. They can't even lay their head on the pillow. So the idea that I'd strap this mask on their head is ridiculous, frankly. I mean, I thought it was a torture device. So one, it doesn't have a placebo effect. They're not standing outside my door trying to say, please get me that sexy mask. I want it, okay? So the fact that her headaches got better is not a placebo and it's not a drug. That was totally fascinating. And I spent five years watching what happened to relatively young, healthy people. Pretty soon I started doing sleep studies on little kids, on teenagers, everybody who came in with a daily headache got a sleep study. So much of my thinking about sleep happened way before I stumbled into vitamin D, which is what we're going to talk about second. The observations during that time are really important because there are so many legends, so much dogma about if you don't sleep, if you don't feel good when you wake, it's your fault. And I learned over time just by asking people lots of questions that that's not true. They, they have a terrible disease and we're avoiding taking responsibility for it because we don't have an answer. And that is a tendency of most physicians. Um, I don't think I just adopted that because of who I am. I think we, as physicians, tend, when we don't have a good answer, to want to make up a story. And it's to convey a level of confidence. The frustrating part for the doctor and the patient is that if I make up a story and it helps you, then it's a, it's a helpful thing. It takes away your complaint. If I make up a story and it doesn't fix you, but you adopt that story, especially if it's about me blaming you, you do it wrong. There is so much literature currently blaming the patient for their own disease, whether it's sleep disorders or heart disease or diabetes. I, I think that's a move in the wrong direction. So my five years in sleep taught me that there is a huge body of People who are not sleeping well, these are young, healthy people. These are not elderly 60-year-olds with heart disease. These are young, healthy females that really should not have a single pain. They shouldn't have a headache. They should be perfectly healthy and raising their kids, and yet they're not. And the best that we usually do with them is either tell them they're crazy or tell them it's their own fault. They must be doing something wrong. So as I began to watch them get better with CPAP devices that still just became just, I could not believe that one, they would put these on, two, that they would get better. And then they would come back and say things like, well, you know, my headache's better, but my knee pain is gone. And I would go, God, that is so bizarre. We're blowing air up their nose. I mean, I was so primitive that I thought, oh, we're blowing air in their nose. I don't know. What, what does it have to do with the head? Well, the knees aren't in the head. So at the very beginning, I began to think, oh, this has to be something about leaving the airway open during times when it would have closed and interrupted sleep. It must be keeping the sleep more continuous. The other thing that was important about these, this population was they did not have drops in oxygen, and most of them did not stop breathing. So even though I, I had a supplied answer by the pulmonologist, the pulmonologist 
got the sleep apnea population first because the neurologist stepped away. So the pulmonologist said, oh, it's oxygen to the brain. Well, oxygen, when you take it away from the brain, causes stroke. It doesn't cause sleep apnea. <laughs> so there's something wrong here. Okay, so the neurologist, I'm seeing, head, I'm seeing headache patients all week. I'm seeing the stroke patients on the weekend when I'm on call. No. Oxygen to the brain, it's not, it can't be that simple. That, and, and then I would see multiple things get better. I would do sleep studies in everyone. And this daily headache patient wears a CPAP device. She only has a little tiny bit of apnea. And she also comes back and says, my tremor is gone. And I would be like, you know, I don't have any medicines that cure tremor. I have medicines that treat tremor. Just like I have medicines that treat headache. This person put on this torture mask and her tremor went away and her headache went away. If I can get my head around how that is working, that is extraordinarily powerful. Okay, so I'm, I spent five years being frustrated by the fact that I didn't understand what was going on. Then the second thing I learned was most of my patients didn't have apnea. That meant I couldn't give them a CPAP mask. That meant, oh, I'm tantalized by the idea that if I could treat their sleep, I could fix them but I have no way to fix it now. All I've left with is sleeping pills. And I begin to realize that many of the medicines we've used over the last 40 years for daily prevention for migraine are really helping sleep. All the tricyclic antidepressants, nortriptyline, desipramine, amipramine, lots of the medicines that we've gotten used to using because they work, not because we know what we're doing. They actually help sleep. And as I read more into the sleep literature, I would realize, oh, well, this is describing the mechanism of how this medicine works, but it's really improving the sleep. And, oh, that means if I can make their sleep better, I can make their headaches better. And, in fact, that's true. So I started to use sleeping pills, which I had never used before in any of my patients, pretty much like candy. I would give anybody a sleeping pill. Now, the other really important thing to learn is, if there are 50 sleeping pills that you have to choose from, which is an exaggeration, there will be 50 different people who want 50 different medicines. That means it's frustrating for the doctor and the patient because I may have to go through five different pills. What that means in the background is every pill that a doctor makes, we think we're really cool. We've done something dramatically wonderful. We've made this pill, the patient's happy. But in actual fact, what we've done is we've made a duplication of a neurotransmitter, a neurochemical that your brain is actually using. That means we stumble on these pills by accident. We do it in a chemical way in a biochemistry laboratory. But when they work, it turns out we've done something that duplicates whatever the brain is lacking. Now, what that says in the background is it's not simple. There are at least 20 different neurotransmitters that are moving up and down to make the normal transitions in sleep. So one, it's a little complicated. Two, the sleeping pills are not bad. They just aren't treating the disease. They aren't reversing the disease. They're helping. They're a crutch. So I saw people get better, but I also began to realize this is why my patients don't continue to stay better. I'm not fixing the disease. There's a disease in the background. Something is happening, and I began to read articles about where is it 
that we do these transitions, that we flip into REM. So about in the end of the second year, my pulmonologist happened to mention to me, um, Stashi, I don't know if you've noticed this, but most of your patients don't have apnea. And I said, yeah, what's up with that? And he said, well, you're sending a different population than we usually see, but you may not have noticed this, but they have REM-related apnea. They only stop breathing in REM sleep. And I said, no, I didn't notice that. I'm reading the first page still where they have the report, okay? And I had not done any training in sleep. So I was just kind of going based on what they had reported. Well, he said, now, the other thing I've noticed is they, many of them have no REM. And I said, well, that can't be right. That, that, that can't be good for these people. Uh, that's not on your report. And he said, I know. <laughs> I went, what? What do you mean that's not in the report? Well, it's in the second page. So I began to realize that this whole group was an early group. They're early, early in the disease. They may actually have a preamble to obstructive sleep apnea, but they don't have any rapid eye movement sleep. Well, what are the other things that happen in there? One, the same group of patients always says the same three things. I can't remember anything. I'm in a bad mood. I'm cranky, and I have a headache every day. Now, we would have blamed it on the migraine. But what if we pictured instead that I've taken away your rapid eye movement sleep, which has allowed us to remember everything and to make serotonin so we're happy the next day or whatever the mix is. So I've taken away the REM sleep of these young, healthy females. Why? Why do they not have any REM sleep? So now I start to read all the articles about sleep. I'm about to publish this piece, which is, could this mean that the sleep is the primary problem and the headache comes from that lack of REM because they are not making the right chemicals to allow their brain to wake up in the off state. So their pain system should awaken in a nice, calm off state. And then when somebody hits you in the head with a hammer, then you get a headache. Okay. That's the way I'm thinking about it. So why has this happened to all these? And because they're young and healthy, you don't have other drugs in the way. Uh, it's hard to blame them. So for five years, I'm looking through the literature as to what, what takes away REM sleep. What do we know about animals? Where does this happen? And because the women would come back and say things like, oh, my hips don't hurt anymore. My knees don't hurt anymore. And I would notice that the second thing they report on these sleep studies is that the legs are moving. And they'll say, we have this many periodic limb movements of sleep. Well, I thought, now that CPAP mask is not going to take those leg movements away. It may keep the airway open when the airway is too relaxed. But what are we doing for those leg movements? And is it possible that the gals who still have knee pain are moving their legs. So now I get into the literature about we get paralyzed in sleep. And my pulmonologist says to me, we get the most paralyzed of all in REM. And I think, oh, well, that's why they only stop breathing in REM. If we paralyze the upper part of the body, the neck and above, only in rapid eye movement sleep, then that's when the tongue falls back. And if this is a mild form, that means that all of this problem with the tongue closing during deep sleep is really about 
how we get paralyzed in sleep. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a big tongue, but it means that there's more than one place that you should be focusing. So I begin to read more and more in the neurology literature, and there turns out to be a whole body of literature that's about what, which are the cells that do this, how do they work, and there's actually a guy back in the year 2000. I didn't find this until 2015, but there's a guy who writes about the basic physiology of how we get paralyzed in sleep, who wrote a basic chapter, who says, you know, it's likely that these cells are malfunctioning and this is the cause of apnea and of leg kicking. As far as I can tell, he's the first person to think that. I got to the same place over time by reading the primary literature, which is about how these cells connect. There are a set of cells in the back of the base of the brain that's called the brain stem that is the same in reptiles as it is in humans. It's the same in dinosaurs as it is in humans. It's really, really old. That means the wiring diagram of this that allows us to get paralyzed, to paralyze our throat, you know, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You don't swallow and you drown. You're dead. Now, that means that the engineering of this center that paralyzes these muscles, number one, it's dangerous to get paralyzed. Why would we do that? It must be extremely important. It must be so important that we have to figure out an engineering answer to, oh, I just got paralyzed, I didn't swallow, and I died. Well, the answer is the brain is constantly monitoring what's happening. And in fact, now that I think of it this way, I go back and I look at the sleep studies. And what you'll see in the sleep study is the technician is reading the sleep study and says, oh, this person stopped breathing 18 times in an hour. But when the guy stops breathing, it's not the technician who runs in there and shakes him awake and says, Tommy, wake up. It's the brain that wakes him. What you see before he starts breathing again is the brain puts him into light sleep. He stops being paralyzed. He doesn't even wake up. That's why you can have this happening and you're not aware of it. The brain is already set up to deal with the possibility of getting too paralyzed. Well, if you can get too paralyzed and these little cells are actually sending wires. So there's cells in the brain and they send a long wire down to the muscle and they paralyze it. Well, doesn't that mean that they have to be able to turn it on again? Otherwise we're stuck. We're dead. So could that mean that these cells, the same place that's making us too paralyzed and our, and our airway collapses could be making us not paralyzed enough. And could that be why, Oh, I've got this eight year old who's in here with me. He has daily headache. He stops breathing. Well, why would an eight-year-old stop breathing? Why would he stop breathing and kick his legs? What if that means he has one disease? He has one disease where those same cells are wobbling. They're not staying right on target like cruise control the way they should. And so now I start thinking of it that way, and I I start thinking of it that way so I can explain it to my patients. And most of them are probably just like, oh, my goodness, what is she babbling about? But... I'm thinking about it so deeply that now I'm thinking there is something dramatically wrong happening around the world. 
It's not just in East Texas where I'm practicing. I'm reading more and more articles that show that sleep disorders are compounding throughout the USA, around the world. Every place where they have electricity in a big town, Brazil, Germany, South Africa, all have sleep study places where they're sending people for sleep studies and they have sleep apnea and their legs are moving. That means this is a dramatic epidemic that did not exist when I was in medical school. So in medical school, we had no classes. When I, This is the late 70s. So I have lived before and after this epidemic, which is really important, too, because if you talk to a 30-year-old, they think sleep apnea is just part of the normal world. It's not. It was not there because in medical school, we had no classes on sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, or irritable bowel. Those things were present but in small enough numbers that it wasn't a major part of learning about it. So this is one, a new trend Two, affecting all age groups. It's not age related. Little kids have this three doesn't it be, doesn't appear to be related to heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, the way it's been built, the way it's been sold to me. So now I'm thinking this is a population that's affecting actually my grandkids more than it is my kids earlier. And I begin to realize if I can fix your sleep, I improve not only your life today, but I make a big impact on your lifespan. If you do not sleep, you age faster than everyone around you. At the same time, I'm seeing this in my headache population. I'm seeing the same thing in my stroke patients on the weekend. And I begin to realize that every single stroke patient I see has a sleep disorder in the background that we've, we've neglected to treat. So that same patient who has a stroke this year, it's not uncommon for that same patient to show up again a year later, sometimes in the same month of the year, with a seizure that we say is related to the stroke. Well, if a seizure is due to the brain being electrically too cranky, hyperexcitable, could that be because... I treated, quote unquote, the stroke with Plavix or aspirin or something to make the blood not so sticky. But what I missed was the sleep disorder that was in the background. If I don't treat that sleep disorder, then the patient is presenting a year later with another manifestation of being sleep deprived. So now all of my stroke patients go for sleep studies. They all get CPAP. They are all really much more severe, much further down the line in the advancement of the disease. And I recognize that we have now ignored one of the most important medical problems that exists on the planet. And I also realized that as I walk into the hospital, well, I, I always ask everyone the same questions. How did you sleep last night? And my hospital patients will say, well, I slept until they came and gave me a bath at 3 a.m. And then I got a CAT scan at 4 a.m. And then the night before, they came and they drew blood at 4 a.m. And I went, really? That's bizarre. Here you are at the lowest ebb of of your body's ability to protect and repair you. And we sleep deprive you. And I began to realize that the way things are organized in the hospital Okay, these are the sickest people. It's organized around the physician's convenience. I want my CT to look at in the morning. I want the labs back. 
And I don't want you to be bathing the patient because I won't be able to come in. And so I began to write little notes and I paste them on the patient's door saying, do not awaken the patient between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. for blood draw, x-ray, or bathing. And the thing that made amazing difference in my life and the life of my patients was that my hospital did not give me any blowback, which is amazing. Okay. Now they didn't start to institute that throughout. And I still have other physicians that are doing that now, but as you read the literature now, what you'll see is that hospitals over since 2010, when I started to do that consistently over the last eight to 10 years, hospitals are beginning to recognize that that is the only time we heal. The reason why patients who are very, very sick, whether it's a motor vehicle accident or severe medical in, uh, illness, they go to sleep if they're able to, okay? And then we doctors got in the habit of putting them to sleep. If you can sleep normally, this is how all animals heal. They go lie under a bush and they sleep for long periods of time so we can repair. So, can I interrupt you there? There's a couple of little things which, which, which are making questions in my head. So first of all, um, I've always understood that deep sleep, i.e. non-REM sleep, was actually the recovery and repair period and that REM sleep was purely just to sort of sort out your psychological stuff and the paralysis that comes with that is literally so you just don't get up and walk around because you're dreaming, so you don't act out your dreams. And we know, for example, that sleepwalking is much more prevalent in children and growing all the time than it is in adults. So does could you can you talk a little bit about that just so I can understand better exactly which part of the sleep cycle is really rest and repair or is it all the sleep cycle? Great question and a perfectly timed. Um, so sleep is divided into light sleep where we're still able to make some memories. Now, that means that we can actually wake out of light sleep and almost always normal people wake to light sleep and then wake up. That transition to light sleep probably allows the hippocampus, which is our memory machine, kind of like a video camera, to switch on and allow us to make a memory when we wake, okay? So the only time when that video camera turns off is in deep sleep. And you can think of it, I think, as, and there are two phases of deep sleep, but you turn off the memory machine because you're downloading. You're not only repairing the hippocampus, but you're downloading. So you have to flip into, oh, I'm actually taking the information off, therefore I can't make new memories. So, one, most of us make no new memories during sleep. Most of us, okay? Those who stay in light sleep all night long, remember the passage of time. And that piece turns out to be a really important piece to give you an idea. Even if you don't do a sleep study on someone, someone who's a, who tells you, I'm aware all night long. It usually means they stay in light sleep and they wake in and out of light sleep. Okay, the second piece is light sleep then is a transition. We don't really know if work is being done there, but I'm going to tell you some things that make me think that the basic repair work is not being done in light sleep. We start in drowsy, we go to light sleep, and then we go to the first phase of deep sleep, which is called slow wave sleep, and it has a particular EEG, electrodes on the head, brainwave measurement, that is deep sleep, and that is where we get paralyzed from the neck down. That is where growth hormone is released. It's released in adults as well as children. In children, it's released in a continuous 
continuous amount for the whole phase of slow wave sleep. When you transition to adult and puberty, it changes to a pulsatile release, but it stays in slow wave sleep and it's only released there. Because of that, I think that slow wave sleep is predominantly for the physical body, that we get paralyzed in order to fix the moving parts. Now, obviously, your liver doesn't need to get paralyzed, okay? So probably there's all sorts of repair mechanisms that happen in the internal organs that happen during that time. But the next bit is there are two phases of deep sleep during which time we get paralyzed. Slow-wave sleep is usually in the beginning of the of the um, first four hours of sleep. So usually between about 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. if you're going to have blocks of deep sleep. And by the way, we do these deep sleep episodes in little blocks of time that are usually at maximum about an hour. Once you know we get paralyzed, it becomes pretty clear that if you were to stay paralyzed for eight hours straight, you would have bed sores. You would hurt parts of your body. So we do it in blocks, probably so we wake up, roll over, and get in a different position. And then also, you wake to lighter sleep so you're aware of your surroundings to some extent. Even if you're not aware of being awake, that protects you because you're very, very fragile and easily preyed upon during this time at night. That's why most animals find a, a hidden place so that they're relatively protected. So in the second half of the night, the most common deep sleep is rapid eye movement sleep. The What you depicted in saying that it helps our emotional state is the way I was picturing it too, but I have a little bit more to add to that. If we know that our airway has to get paralyzed, so the tongue, the throat, all the muscles around the throat, external and internal, if they all have to get paralyzed, in order to repair them, if we're going to take this idea that repair of moving parts happens in the state of paralysis, then you're right, the brain doesn't have to get paralyzed. So, and so we think that REM sleep has an awful lot to do with processing things that happen. Emotional things that happen are processed during REM sleep. And I completely agree with you that what I've seen is if you take away REM sleep, you get eventually PTSD, you get post-traumatic stress disorder. What I think happens, and this is based on the literature of what they've been able to see with, with clients, is if you think of it as, oh, it's only people who have a sleep disorder that get PTSD. If you think of it in the opposite way, so we think, oh, there are 19 guys who are all at war who have this terrible experience, but only four of them get PTSD. The other 15 did something that allowed them to process the horrors of what they saw. I think what we do is we get into REM, we reenact, and we gain mastery. Every animal has a predator. Every animal. We are one of the few who only has ourselves as the predator. So we focus on war, but every squirrel if they fall out of the tree, my dog eats them. That means for them to run out of their little hole and feel confident enough, they're smart. They don't forget that Uncle Harry just fell out of the tree yesterday and they heard him screaming till his death. So I think every animal gains mastery over the idea that there's a predator by sleeping into REM sleep and probably killing the dog in their sleep and then feeling like, 
they're strong and confident and happy so they can leave their hole and run around in the tree. The reason why I think that is that we've seen such an increase in anxiety, in agoraphobia, in staying in our little hut and being too afraid to go out. I think that most of the things that we're doing chemically, not only with the the wiring diagram of the brain, but the chemistry we start off the day with, probably does in fact happen in REM sleep. When you think about the fact that there were generations before us where you just saw uh, your entire tribe of um, Caddo Indians wiped out by the blue coats uh, and you're the only surviving one and you don't kill yourself. Somehow that person was able to want to keep living in the most horrible tragedy that you can imagine where you're now exiled from, you know, so there are, there are actual tragedies in the past that humans have lived through and they can still come to a place of happiness. So I I picture it the following. Now I picture slow wave sleep as being equivalent in terms of repair, but it's probably the neck down. And and it's probably not as simple as that. There is literature suggests that we still dream some in slow wave sleep. Then I picture REM sleep as probably we do paralyze our airway so we don't cry out, but we probably also do a lot of repair to the muscles, joints, nerves in the head and face, neck also. And so we do multiple things and probably most of the emotional um, cleanup is done in REM sleep. There's a whole new literature about the lymphatic system of the brain and washing the brain that is just mind-boggling for someone as old as I were. With the CSF flow, you mean? Yes. Yeah, I've read that too. I think it's amazing. Yeah. So uh, ultimately, what I, what I carry away from this whole thing is, that's amazing. Who did that? How did they figure it out? If you think of the fact that the brain is the same in the dinosaur, biologically, it is exactly the same. They taught their children. They have to know, the dinosaur has to know who to mate with, who's safe to be around, where's the food that they eat. They have to be able to guard their young. These are all things that means that this engineering has been re-engineered so many times so successfully that the idea that humans are going to do it better is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Okay, that means we are outside observing a miracle of engineering. The best we're going to do, and the reason why that's so important is, what I'm going to talk next about is, I fell into vitamin D. What I'm not going to tell you is, vitamins are magical and they're going to fix your sleep. What I'm going to tell you is, because we moved indoors and we aren't out in the sun anymore, There is a biologic reason why this epidemic has occurred around the planet at this time. And that means I want to supply the raw materials, but I'm not going to try to duplicate what the brain is doing. It's way too complicated. The best I can do is to listen to what the patient says. Were we successful in getting them to sleep better? And then we say, if we weren't successful, then, gee, there must be something else that the brain is lacking. 
Okay, I'm going to stop for a minute and let, let you ask any other questions that have occurred to you. Actually, I just also had another thought, which is a, a very close friend of mine last year um, after a cardiac arrest was was in an artificial coma for about 10 days and had that very typical ICU psychosis for a week or so. I've often wondered whether actually that kind of narcosis actually inhibits REM. And that's the reason why you have that psychosis. Just a kind of aside, my brain wondering. He, he had a cardiac arrest and a psychosis because he has been sleep deprived for 20 years. Right. So only the people who have a severe sleep disorder get these things that we have just got as doctors have gotten used to. Okay. You don't get psychotic if you don't have a sleep disorder preceding the event that led up to it. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So the elderly population that we say, oh, we gave mom some morphine and she got confused in the hospital only happens in some of the clients. It doesn't matter if they're all 85. The one that doesn't have the sleep disorder just gets the benefit of morphine and doesn't go crazy. What we have missed in all of our practices of medicine in the hospital is that there's always a sleep disorder. Unless somebody just got shot with a gun or wasn't in a motor vehicle accident. And in the current time, most people, even if they have an accidental reason for coming in the hospital, really have a sleep disorder in the background. Right. It's more. Un so and the other thing that's really important is. This is not the way I looked at medicine, but medicine only deals with what walks in the door. We, we don't have any medicines for a, a, a big purple horn growing out of my forehead at age 80 because it doesn't happen. Right. But if, if everybody started to come into my office with this purple horn, I'd go, oh, that's a little lump. It's going to turn purple soon in the end. You're going to have this horn, you know, and then we would have medicines that would reverse it. Okay. The reason why I say that is because when I got into vitamin D, I realized that there were 50 different diseases that were linked either directly to D or D's effects on the microbiome. And I thought, this can't be right. This is affecting 50 diseases. That's too, that's too many. I'm trying to explain all these things with one, it is a cascade of events and it's really several things. But then I began to realize, oh, all these things that we say are these diseases these are all linked to one another, and they are actually part of a cascade of events. And not only that, they're the oldest diseases that medicine has described. Heart failure, diabetes, uh, depression, swelling in the legs. These are all things that started to be described, you know, 2,000 years ago. But the British and Eastern and Western European books that were written that my medical courses were based on started to be written in the middle 1800s and they would observe things that would walk in the door and then they would write about it. That means vitamin D is not linked to everything. It's just linked to everything that everybody around me has first as they're elderly. Now those same things are moving up into younger and younger populations. Okay. So it's kind of a, opens a window to say, okay, let's, what's the next phase of what happened to me? Okay. Right. Any other questions before I move to the next? No, phase? move, move on. I'd love to know how, how the vitamin D fits. Okay. In the show. How did, how did that come about? So first I'm in this state where I'm looking at these cells in the back of the brain going, what is wrong with those guys? And then I have in 2009, I had this beautiful 18 year old 
who has daily headache and she comes to me and I send her up her sleep study and she says, I sleep fine, but I'm always tired. So I give her the medicine, her headaches go away. She comes back. I've got her sleep study in front of me and now I've gotten really good at reading them. And she has absolutely no REM. She has no slow wave sleep. She has 10 solid hours. She's asleep, but she has no deep sleep. None. And I think this is really bad. I mean, she's going to show up with a stroke at age 25. Conducive to life, really, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it isn't. No wonder she feels tired. And I don't have anything to do for her. She doesn't stop reading. She sleeps for 10 hours. Why would she take a sleeping pill? And I'm completely stumped. And I think this is the core of what I'm looking at in every patient I see. They manifest in different ways. We each have our own genetic weaknesses. If I take Tatiana's sleep away, she will get whatever genetic weakness she has. I will get something else. But this is the core of how we heal. What am I supposed to do for her? And I say, well, how are you doing? She said, well, my headaches are gone, which is nice, but I'm really tired. And is there anything you can do for that? And I say, well, no. I mean, I don't do tiredness, but has your doctor done those fatigue labs? And she says, no. Or I don't even know what those are. And I say, well, I don't either. Uh, So I do a thyroid and a B12, and she turns out to have a profound B12 deficiency. Because we now have the internet, instead of walking out to the neurology textbook, which is what I would usually do, I go out to Google and I type in symptoms of B12 deficiency, and it says daily headache. And I go, Oh my God, I've never done a B12 level in a headache patient in my life. Well, it turns out, I go back to the neurology literature, it's not in the neurology literature. It's in the neurology literature under B12 deficiency. Headache is one of the symptoms. But in terms of what should you do as a neurologist who specializes in headache, it's not in there. So then I think, you know, B12 has to do with sleep. And all of a sudden I think, I don't know anything about vitamins, but I know they're the building blocks of repair for these cells and these cells that are firing at three cycles per second, those little guys that do that paralysis are pacemaker cells, the timers that tell us when to flip into each phase of sleep and when to flip out of it. They're pacemaker cells. They're clocks. Well, that means, uh, and I've been reading all this literature trying to figure out what's going wrong. They have to repair in between the beats They are more stressed than any other cell in our body. And I think, well, maybe they get B12 deficient first. And wow, what if I could give back something? What if this is a deficiency state? And all around the world, they're deficient in this common thing. And wow, that would be so amazing. So I start doing blood on all my headache patients instead of sleep studies. Because I've already realized there's only a small percentage of these people that have sleep apnea. Most of them don't have apnea, so the sleep study... Now that I've got a thousand of them already, I don't need to see them again. I kind of know what they look like. What if I could fix them? That's really what I want to do. So I start doing B12 levels. And about a month or two later, one of my patients says, you know, my doctor gave me vitamin D. My wrist pain went away. Well, I don't care about vitamin D. I don't care about vitamins, really. But I happen to be drawing blood. And I think, man, a lot of these headache patients have a lot of other pain. And I don't have an answer for that. And it often doesn't go away with the sleeping pills. So maybe that deal out their pain. And that's as far as I think. I just add the vitamin D to the B12 test. And for about four months, everybody who walks in the door has got daily headache. Who I'm treating who has a sleep disorder. 
gets a D and a B12. Within about three months, it becomes obvious that the B12 is only there in the really sick ones. The ones that have been sick for longer and have more diseases, they'll have a B12 deficiency. But every single person has a low D. And that's even, oh, I happen to be measuring it between August and November, which in my area of the planet happens to be the end of the summer. I do my own. My own is 35. It says it's normal. So I go, eh. No problem, except that I don't sleep very well. So I'm watching all these people. In December, I actually have two guys that come back. They're both headache patients. They both wear CPAP. They're both males. And they both received a lab slip from me that said, take a 1,000 international units of vitamin D. Your D is low. Now, it turns out that that was kind of by mistake because I had gotten so fraught up with writing your vitamin D is low, take some vitamin D every night, 15 or 20 times, that I actually Xerox the lab slip. So it turns out these guys had a slightly higher D. So one, their D levels, both of these men had a D in the 40s, which I would never have treated. They both took a thousand IUs, which was not enough to treat anybody, it turns out. But in this particular situation, they both had an improvement. So in one week in December of 2009, just before I go on vacation, Two guys come in and say, you know, I'm wearing this stupid CPAP mask for a whole year. My wife will tell you I wear it every night, but my headaches were no better. And I think, oh, I'm sorry. And he says, no, no, you sent me that note about vitamin D. I went out and bought some vitamin D. And in about three weeks, I started to sleep better and my headaches went away. Now, I and the, another guy in the same week, exactly the same story. What I learned after was that I think that 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 clinical observation was built on the fact that these two guys had several other things going their way. One, their D was better than all of my women with the headaches. Two, they're already on CPAP, which helped them a lot. Okay. So they both noticed that they were better. And so what I did then in the week after I said, well, you know, B12 is not the deficiency, but vitamin D is deficient in every single person who I've done a sleep study on. Could that mean that vitamin D is somehow linked? So I go to the PubMed and I Google it and I said, well, you do the, the equivalent of Googling only on PubMed. I do a search and what I get is zero vitamin D in sleep, zero, but vitamin D in the brain up pops this article by this guy who has these same cells that I've been reading about in the back of the brain stem that does paralysis and switches us in and out of sleep. All of those cells specifically named that have vitamin D receptors on them. And this is from someone who's written for 30 years about how vitamin D links us to the seasons. So first, I think, why would vitamin D have anything to do with the brain if it's all about calcium and bone, which is all I knew at the time. And I step right into this pre-made context which is a a gentleman named Walter Stump, who's been writing about vitamin D since the late 70s, saying that everything that an animal needs to coordinate to the seasons, namely reproduction. So if you move away from the equator so that there's a winter, you don't want to have babies in the winter. You want to be able to have the babies when there's food available. Oh, there's no food in the winter. Could that mean that we would then put on fat and sleep longer, i.e. hibernate, oh, how do the animals do that? 
by linking a hormone that's made on the skin from the sun. Makes perfect sense. I, I mean, like, duh! This guy put it all together. Now, I spent from 2009 until last year wondering why none of the other vitamin D experts jumped right on Walter's context because it makes perfect sense. I didn't learn until I went to a thing called the vitamin D workshop, which happens every year. And it invites every single scientist, no matter what kind of scientist, MD, PhD, bench scientist, whatever, animals, vegetables, minerals, anybody who uses vitamin D can come to this workshop. And only subtly in social occasions when I would kind of ask around, Walter has passed away since then. But it turns out that Walter's arrogance in his presentation prevented his colleagues because we are human beings and primates are very attentive to status. And he was so arrogant and so convinced that he was the only one who got it right. Now, when it happens, I happen to think he is the only one who got it right. But the, what that taught me was if I want the entire medical community to embrace this, I have to learn how not to do make the same mistake that Walter did. Because if I had learned what he wrote, I was in medical school in the 80s. He was writing articles in 1979 that showed that vitamin D had receptors in the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the pituitary, the stomach, the pancreas, and the islet cells. All of that literature was there. That means his way of interrelating with other practitioners and other scientists meant that hundreds of my patients died. I watched them die because of information that was present but not accepted by the medical community. Because what I'm about to propose is so common and it is killing people and it's giving them pain, I spent a parallel amount of time questioning and thinking about why medicine is the way it is, you know, it, and we have to realize that we are humans and we are primates. And so I have a lot that goes on in my head about trying to make, and you and I are going to talk about this in the second interview we're going to do. Why has, I, I published my first article about this in 2012 and it's so logical. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. I can show you hibernation bears, you know, I can show you all this stuff. And yet the medical community has not just opened the book and go, oh, well, this is obviously true. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. So one, I started then to say, okay, this is the most logical thing I've ever seen. And then the next question would be, if all of my patients have bad sleep because their D is too low, uh, that's really interesting. But really, I, wanted, I want them to be better. So then the next question is, well, if the vitamin D blood level is too low, is there an ideal vitamin D level that would then get this part of the brain working normally? And we have no idea. So I just start asking my patients, how's your sleep? And start giving vitamin D. And the, the guy who is really the, the major pioneer in this area is John Cannell, who's on the vitamin D council.org. I really recommend that site really smart guy who started writing in the early 2000s about the fact that 
the medical community was ignoring this very important chemical. And he was the first one to make it available to get your vitamin D level done if your doctor didn't agree with you. He was the very first one, as far as I know. That turns out to be growing in popularity, and that's available in, in the UK. There's a lab in Brighton that they've committed to allowing people for a reasonable price to be able to get their vitamin D blood level and follow it over time. So over a period of two years, I actually called Walter Stump. We had long conversations. I gave my patients increasing doses of vitamin D. John Connell provided the really important observation that there's a specific D level and there's a specific D blood type that you must measure that's really affecting all the things that he was following, which did not include sleep. So he gave me the right tip. Walter gave me more information. I measured what the vitamin D level was in my patients. And it turns out that the patients could easily tell me that when their level was 62 and it was blinded, i.e. that meant that the patient didn't know what their D level was. I didn't know what their level was because I was just too dumb to, to realize I should have them do a vitamin D level before they came to see me. You know, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm a clinician. I'm really focused on this patient who's in the room with me getting better. But it turns out that the experiment, which it really was an experiment, was blinded on both sides. Neither one of us knew whether or not it would help them. But it was very obvious to the to the client. Uh, you know, last week I didn't sleep that well. This week I sleep well. And I go, you're better? Like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And we send him down to the lab. And their lab is, level is 62. And it was dramatic that there was a difference, especially in headache patients. If their level would sneak down to below 60, they would get a headache again. And, and there's a, a bunch of things to know about that. But ultimately, it was very easy to publish that it was the blood level for the best sleep is 60 to 80. In the UK, the measurements are different. It's a different unit. Right. So That's very confusing. It's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. The units in the UK, that same magic window is 150 to 200. So you do have to know what the units are. So once publishing that, I thought everybody else would just go, wow, great, let's do this. No, nobody cares. You know, I mean, it was just amazing. And I would go babbling to people about this and they would just think I was completely nuts. And all my colleagues thought I went crazy. And then the next piece that's just as important turns out to have a very big impact on my patients and myself, which is one, I'm doing the same thing my patients are because I, I'm in my fifties now and I'm perimenopausal and I'm sleeping lousy. And I'm thinking, well, my level is 35 and I'm not taking any B man. This is happening to me too. So I'm watching what's happening to them as I'm living it. And in about two years after we start, so we started early 2010 by early 2012 most of us have pain of various kinds, back pain, leg pain, knee pain, foot pain, shoulder pain, neck pain. My headache patients are coming back saying my headache's back. And I say, oh, it's your D-level. No, they've done their D-level because they already been with me for two years. Nope, my D is 65. I did it last week. And I begin to realize that there is something else going on. So the way I was thinking about it, the reason why the preamble is so important is there isn't one thing that does everything. The brain needs several of the building blocks to be able to make the repairs, to make this a healthy cell, to allow that cell to fire at three times a minute. Mm -hmm. 
So now I realize that there's something else that these people are lacking. And the, the advantage I have is I'm seeing 45 people a week. They all have different medical problems. They all have different neurologic problems. They come from different places, but they're all presenting with similar things at a specific time. The only thing they all share in common is they all started vitamin D with me two years ago. So they all got better, and then after about two years, their symptoms start to come back despite the vitamin D supplementation. Yep. Right. And always in the background, their sleep is getting worse again. Okay. So the core of the message is always focus on the sleep. Vitamins are building blocks, but the sleep is the cure. So the sleep is going bad again. And two of my headache patients who are young, healthy females, both walk in the door within about a month of each other with burning in their hands and feet. I've been a neurologist for 30 years by this time. I know burning in the hands and feet just doesn't happen. It happens in the feet. doesn't happen in the hands and feet. And the only time you ever see that is in B12 deficiency, but they are on B12 already. And I know their B12 levels are good. So I'm left with this feeling, this inkling that something I'm doing with this D is, is a, it's got to be related because it's just too coincidental that they don't have anything else wrong with them. They don't have diabetes. They don't have all the things that we blame this burning on. And they're young and healthy, and they both get it within a month of each other. It's got to be somehow related to the D. And then within about six months, one of my patients walks in the door with a book about pantothenic acid. So it's B5. It's a vitamin that no one's heard of because every single book that exists says there is no panathenic acid deficiency because it's in every food. So I don't even look at the book. I put it on the bookcase. I treat her with great respect. And I say, of course, I'll read it. Thank God she actually makes me promise to return it to her. And about two months later, I actually read it. Well, the reason why she brought it to me, it's written in the 90s. It's about giving panathenic acid in a dose of 400 milligrams to rheumatoid arthritis patients because a woman who's a lay person who works with a, probably with Adele Davis at that time, because she writes it in the 90s, gives her panathenic acid, her pain goes away, and her sleep gets better. And she mentions that the sleep gets better a lot. And the reason why my patient brought it to me was because there was a link between panathenic acid and sleep. And the gal who writes the book gives me references. So I go to the references, and I'm like totally like, wow. Another vitamin that's linked to sleep that I know nothing about. This could be horrendous. I run down to the drugstore. I buy 400 milligrams of panathenic acid. But I also have only one memory of vitamins from medical school, which is if you give one B, you have to give all of them. Okay. And I remember that I had just hurt a lot of my patients, my family, and myself by not knowing everything there is to know about vitamin D. Now, it turns out it's impossible to know that. But... And we're going to talk about that in the second half. But I'm so cautious now about these things that we've been told. You can't hurt anyone with vitamins. You can't, you can't take too much. The B vitamins, you just pay out, pee out the extra. I don't believe anything like that anymore. So I'm in there kind of worried. I pick up B100 because I find it. So what happens to me is I look through all the B complexes, and this particular drugstore has a specialty drugstore that has probably – 25 different suppliers of B complexes. Each one of them has a different combination. And I'm just told, like, oh my God, this is a disaster. How can I recommend this to my patients and know what they're taking? So one, very difficult. Two, it's eight chemicals, all moving, all different doses. 
So I'm completely overwhelmed. And by just by finding a, a, a bottle that says B100 on it, which means it has 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each of the Bs, I go home with both of those in my hand. I start taking them and I start recommending them to my patients. So for well, a full week, I recommend this regimen to about 40 people. Everybody who's got pain, who can't sleep anymore, I say, look, this is another vitamin that might help you. I want you to buy this stuff and buy this stuff. So by the end of the week, I have restless legs morning, noon, and night. So I have a sleep disorder too, which is one of the reasons why I am very sympathetic because my legs do these weird things. I feel perfectly fine. I lay down. I feel great. And then my leg starts to do this stuff. I have to take a medicine for it. That means I kind of understand what it's like to have these weird movements that that your body's not supposed to be making. And number two, if I don't have my medicine, I can't sleep at all. And I feel horrible. So I realized that this stuff that I just recommended to about 40 people, just my, my restless legs, very much worse. All day, I'm jumping around like a jumping bean. And I think this is a tragedy because they're going to come back and yell at me because there's a dose-related response to this, just like there was to the D. It says, now, by now, I've, by the end of the week, I'm, I'm hitting the literature. I'm reading all this stuff. It says panathenic acid deficiency doesn't exist. Well, I've learned not to pay any attention. I mean, I'm reading it, but that doesn't mean it's true, okay? So, one, yes, it absolutely, so this chemical, B5, panathenic acid, has a direct effect on sleep, but it just made mine worse, so then I stop the 400 milligrams and I just take B100 and in two days, I feel like I'm 35. I have no pain. I start running again. I feel fantastic in a brief period of time. I feel better than before I started this. So, and my pain is absolutely gone, which is really bizarre. Vitamin D is a hormone. So it, what it does works really slowly. These B vitamins, if you put them into someone whose brain already is happily washed with lots of vitamin D, the effect is very different than in the person who is D deficient, turns out. So that's one thing that you kind of have to learn. So then I have three miserable months in which patients come back and say, this pantothenic acid stuff nearly killed me. I was agitated. I was all buzzed up and I couldn't sleep at all. So I stopped it. Several of them yelled at me. Several of them, however, stopped the panathenic acid and stayed on B100. And enough of them said exactly the same thing I did. This stuff is a miracle. My pain went away in a day, in two days. I'm sleeping again the best I ever have. That is not something you would ever expect, and it's over time I've spent the time reading the literature and trying to figure out how to piece these puzzle pieces together to explain why that happened. But in actual fact, that clinical observation was so strong. The patients would come in and say, this stuff, and they would use exactly the same words. So I would have like 10 people over a week saying, this stuff nearly killed me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is so weird. This is a vitamin that we supposedly pee out that's never been deficient in anyone who's acting like my drugs. This is like an amphetamine, okay? This is much stronger than caffeine. Whatever they're taking, it's going right up into their brain and making them sleepless, why is there such a disconnect between what's happening to my patients 
and what's written in the literature. One, that has to mean that there is no panathenic acid in the food because we wouldn't be sleeping every night. Two, I suspect that the patients that this woman is writing about in the book in the 1990s who go into the health food store and pick up 400 milligrams, because that's the only way we can find panathenic acid. It's in 400 milligrams for a reason. They didn't just make that up. If they take 400 milligrams and their vitamin D is very low, they feel better. But it turns out if your vitamin D is between 60 and 80, because you can see in Dr. Gobanek, and you add 400 milligrams, the effect is totally different. Now, ultimately, I have a scientific explanation for the fact that those two chemicals are synergistic and they make the same neurotransmitter. They end up making acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. So any of the raw materials that go into making acetylcholine, which turns out to be one of the major neurotransmitters that we use both to flip phases and to get paralyzed. It is one of the primary players. And it turns out, ultimately, the final story is, when your D goes low, the bacteria that live in your gut use RD. And the bacteria in our gut make all the B vitamins. They're not from the food. So the final piece that put it all together was, I give 400 milligrams to these two ladies with the burning. The articles that I read in the 1950s were about a very small population where they used a blocker of panathenic acid. And within two weeks, the clients that they, they, they treated, which were criminals that were actually in the Iowa State Prison, so they actually did this weird tube feeding thing. They did stuff that no one would ever get by with doing now. So that wouldn't get past an ethics committee. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, these same guys were asked to write articles. There are ethics articles written by them in the 60s because they carry out all these creepy experiments on, on convicts in, in, a state, in a state prison. So they did things that haven't been repeated. You know, that's the importance of it. One, oh, they got shamed for what they did. Two, nobody did those experiments again. But what they showed was if you block panathenic acid and they made up this artificial diet that they, it was so gross they had to tube feed them because they wouldn't swallow it. They had four symptoms that happened within two weeks. One, their balance went off. They got this funny walk. Two, they got burning in their hands and feet. Three, they couldn't sleep. Four, their belly started to complain. So they started to have belly problems. And they say the, all these interesting things like they couldn't play ping pong anymore because their balance was off. And so these are, it's a funny little tiny scientific article. And if you read that, then you go, oh, this is why these gals have burning. Maybe I give them the panathenic acid. Those two women, their symptoms of burning went away in two days. So that's supportive, okay? Now, the second thing that's interesting about it is one of those two women is still on 400 milligrams. She turned out to have a genetic mutation that means that she, when she got B5 deficient, she needed a much bigger dose. The other gal, we had to stop it right away, okay? So there's a level of complexity of this vitamin. We actually know about the mutations in that enzyme because it presents with early Parkinson's disease. So putting that whole picture together, it turns out that panathenic acid is very important. And it is deficient around the globe now because, not because the food has changed. So these two women have developed this B vitamin deficiency. Now I feel very confident that that's what they have. But their diet hasn't changed. Why would they have that? 
I know that the D is making them sleep better. Maybe the D is making them make more repairs. That's what we want. So maybe they're using more bees. The bees are the building blocks. They're using every one of the biologic cycles that we use to make all the parts of the cell. Could it be that the two-year span was that they were using up their stores of B5? So that's the way it presented clinically. But then I had to go back through the literature for the last 50 years to try to find some substantial reports that I would believe myself that, that supported that idea. And it turns out, one, panathenic acid is not in any food. Coenzyme A is in every food. Coenzyme A is what you take panathenic acid to make coenzyme A, and then coenzyme A does a million different things in the body. Well, it turns out when you eat the coenzyme A, you have to have the right bacteria that have the five enzymes necessary to break it down from coenzyme A to panathenic acid. In the meantime, all these other scientists have done this beautiful work to show the pump that pumps in panathenic acid only pumps in this particular kind of panathenic acid in this particular shape. And it turns out you have to have the right bacteria to do that. Now, the one thing that I said in the second article where I was, it's not that I'm the only person thinking this. I think I've just been the only person who's been brave enough to state it. So all the other scientists who are publishing the fact that every single one of the B vitamins has a colonic bacteria source and a food source, but they don't come to the end of the article and say, in fact, probably the poop bacteria have been making our vitamins all along. So when I read the articles about the fact that, oh, during this epidemic of sleep problems, IBS has become epidemic, and oh, by the way, my patients who took D with me for two years did not have any improvement in their belly. So I knew there was a belly complaint. I'm taking probiotics. They're taking probiotics. We're trading probiotic recipes. <laughs> and I thought the D would fix it, but it didn't. So now I think, oh, if, if it's true that these B vitamins are made by the bacteria and we still have the wrong bacteria, what could they want? What if, and so I'm reading this really good article out of the Economist magazine. Well, why is it in the, that's an, that's an economic journal. There's this beautiful three-page article in about, I think it's 2013, that really summarizes all the GI literature about how important the microbiome is. It has to do with our immune system. It is why people get fat. It is why we can't lose weight. It actually talks to the brain. It makes Krispy Kremes smell better to us. So we eat three of them, even though we're not really hungry. And I think, oh, the D feeds the microbiome, but the microbiome has not grown back. What could those little guys want that I'm not providing? And I realized I just put a whole bunch of people, including me, on B100. And I think, wow, this guy in this article says there are four species that always hang out together. In fact, you can see those four species in baby poop at three months. Those babies are breastfed around the world. They're not taking probiotics. That means those four species want to be there. They want to hang out together. Maybe they're symbiotic, meaning A makes thiamine, that B wants, B makes riboflavin, that A wants, and they all hang out together because when they're together, they make this little B vitamin soup that makes them all happy. 
At the same time, I'm reading these really early articles from a, a summarizing what happened in, in the early life of vitamins, like 1900 to 1930. And it turns out all of the B vitamins were described as bacterial growth factors first. They were actually taken from the yeast bacterial cultures that we use to make bread and beer. It's sitting there. Oh, you make beer with this stuff. It's got yeast growing in. It's got bacteria because it's sitting there. You warm it up. So with all these little bugs grow in it. And then you put it in flour and you make bread or you put it in hops and you make beer. Oh, that's what Pasteur started using to grow bacteria. Because if you just pour it on the table, bacteria grows in it. So the early scientists started to analyze what was in those cultures and slowly over a period of years began to realize if you heated it, if you boiled it, you have to just leave it on the counter. And they tell you when you're making bread or beer, you have to be careful with the temperature. You boil it, some of the vitamins are killed. So ultimately that means, oh, these things that we've considered to be human vitamins were really bacterial growth factors. That means the bacteria make them and they need them why don't, why, don't, why don't they just say, oh, the poop bacteria make all our vitamins? Where did this idea that it came from the food come from? So I, I go into that as well. But it becomes really obvious that a bear that lives in the ground for six months and doesn't eat is still alive at the end. Right. If we pee these out and they only last a day, uh, there was something wrong with this original dogma. It's not true. So I remember even not. about 15 years ago, there was there was this big thing about taking B6 in the UK. And it was clearly obvious that you would get this dyskinesia, tardive dyskinesia, this muscle jerks. And so, I mean, you know, the story that you can't take too much was, to my mind, clearly not true even then. And that it yeah. must it must be really centrally controlled because it's clearly quite a vital group of vitamins. Yes. B6 and B5 are studied together from about 1940 and onward. After they're discovered, they have very similar effects. It's possible that they, and ultimately what you read in every single article is that if you pay attention, you will see that these eight chemicals are very intertwined. They use each other in intermediary steps to be created. They use each other in the biologic setting in which they're used. That means they, you, we really don't know anything about these chemicals. And we throw them around like they're, one, not important. Two, you just pee them out. That is not true. B6 and B5 both have um, not a lot of articles, but enough to substantiate that we have body stores of both of them. That means you can overdose on them. Not a good thing. And you will get neurologic symptoms from both B5 and B6. And what the stores of B6 are may affect how what happens to you with, when you give B5. Same thing and vice versa. So one, I find it finally occurs to me, oh, nothing changed in their diet. They just used up their B5 stores, or that's what it appeared like. So now their diet didn't change, but I know their bacteria is likely gone. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm giving them B100. I'm giving them B100 and D. Could it be that the bacteria that we want, the happy, healthy foursome, is still down there, but the environment is wrong? It's not the supply. That's what the probiotics, the whole probiotics industry, if it were to work, you would take it once and you'd never have to take it again. These are self-sustained colonies. 
cultures that are complex, that are made up, and they occur spontaneously if you live outside. If you don't live outside, then you're in a problem because they need vitamin D also. That is my theory. There's not a single article that documents that. But I think that it's because vitamin D, humans put things into little packets. So they said, oh, vitamin D, calcium. Oh, bone, no. Vitamin D goes back to fungus. You know, mushrooms don't have bones in them. Why do they make vitamin D? No, it's a trophic factor. It's a growth promoting factor. And it turns out that the that original culture that had yeast and bacteria probably was a symbiotic culture. The yeast was making D2, the bacteria like the D2, the bacteria in turn give the yeast back the B vitamins that it needs. And each yeast is a little bit different, you know, as to which one it needs. So what I'm thinking as I'm putting all this together is, oh my goodness, what if I've just discovered the cure for IBS and I'm giving them B100 and D, what's going to happen? What if the bacteria are now floating in this B vitamin soup that they needed, and that favors the happy foursome, and they grow back? Disaster, because they're going to make the bees, okay? They're going to make what they're supposed to make. They'll still be taking my pills, and by unfortunate accident, I saw what it was like to overdose at the beginning. So I said, look, I'm glad your pain is gone and your sleep is better. But I'm a little worried because I I don't know if I'm, I'm just really optimistic. But if this regimen makes your bugs grow back and your sleep all of a sudden falls apart again and your pain comes back, I need you to stop the B100. Okay, stop it. And that's exactly what happened. And it turns out if you take it more than three months, your pain will come back and your sleep will become moved up again. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that in that the D has to be in a certain place for the B100 to give you side effects. But ultimately, most people have to take that regimen of a combination of D and B100 or B50. B50 is the same thing as 50 milligrams of everything. That combination brings back the microbiome in three months, very consistently. I've done this in over 5,000 patients now. There's also still a little bit more to know about it after that. But basically, with the three common things that you can buy at almost any pharmacy. In the UK, it's a little harder. You have to look around. You have to go to the health food store. But you find D, you find B12, if you're B12 deficient, and not everybody is. And you find B50 or B100, and you take those three for three months, you are basically enabling your body to go back to the way we were before we became D deficient. I also think that anybody who's not sick, who doesn't have a sleep disorder, should not be mucking around with this. Because you're doing something that we really don't understand the the implications, like what you said about B6. I really don't know... I, I really have no, I have seven years of experience with taking D in these kind of uh, keeping the blood level fine. But I, I feel very, very committed to the idea that one, anybody who's sick in any way probably isn't just D deficient. I don't think the D by itself, I think the D was supposed to move up and down. It's really the D being lower than 30 than the range in the U S and probably, I, I'm not sure what it is in the UK. I think the lower limit of normal is considered to be like 50 in the UK. 50, yep. If you've been D low under 50 in the UK or under 30, 
for a couple of years and it doesn't happen right away, then your microbiome goes bad and that's when you get sick. The microbiome has huge effects throughout multiple systems in the body. And I think that's the picture that we're seeing. That um, cascade of events where the D goes low and the microbiome goes bad is basically the center of aging. So all of us, as we get into our 60s, even if we lived outdoors, even in the in the ancient or more recent populations that live in Polynesia, where the they're at the equator, they have as much food as they need, they still don't live to be a thousand years old. Around age 65 to 70, grandma starts to have a little trouble with her sleep. She gets a little constipated. She starts to have rheumatism or pain when she wakes up. And those things come about because even though she has a perfectly made skin color for the place on the planet, she still has a decreasing amount of D that she makes for the amount of sun, time she spends in the sun. Then her microbiome goes bad. Then she is now D and B, multiple B vitamins deficient. And then she starts to have medical presentation and then medical problems that end her life. That group of diseases, gait disorders, people, old people walk funny. They're a little stiff. They lose their memory. All of them can be traced back to being well-reported in the vitamin deficiency literature. If you go back to just reading about thiamine, which I'm reading about now, we, we made a mistake when we, when we replaced that only in alcoholics and only as a single vitamin. It's, that's not a single vitamin deficiency state. And as you mentioned, B6 and B5, the blood level does not reflect anything about the body stores. That means most of the blood levels that even the naturopaths are measuring, they're not an accurate reflection of whether or not you can be deficient. You can have a normal B5 level and still have burning in your feet. That means ultimately we need to rethink how we think about these vitamins. I've been using the clinical response on my patients, but I find that you know, I have a lot of clinical parameters that I have the patient use to tell if they're on the right dose. It's hard. I'd like to have some more objective measurement. However, having said that, it is totally amazing. I have seen neurologic illness that we have not considered treatable. Cerebellar gait disorders, staggering gait disorders that come uh, like Parkinson's disease, usually in elderly, we have a whole bunch of mutations. I've seen those reverse themselves. Parkinson's disease goes away. Tremor goes away. Neuropathy goes away. Daily headache, epilepsy. Every single thing in my practice, except for cancer, goes away if you improve the sleep consistently over a period of years. It doesn't, it's not months, it's years. And, and this, this regimen reverses it as long as you're constantly focusing on, okay, how's my sleep? And you have to understand the concept that once I fix what was deficient and my stores are now repleted, and it turns out the microbiome plays a large role in all the little charged ions, manganese, selenium, copper, zinc, iodine. There are all these little charged ions that we use in tiny little doses usually in enzymes to do important things. What I saw was D didn't fix that. I was following iron levels, not purposefully, but I, I just happened to, you know, this patient happens to have anemia. They're doing iron infusion. Why would a 35-year-old male have, need an iron infusion? That's just crazy. And then I fixed the microbiome and poof, 
They go for their iron transfusion and they say, oh, you don't need it. And they're on oral iron, but they were never able to absorb it before. So many of the things that the that we've written about manganese being low in headache people, magnesium being low in headache people, these are all side issues that have been observed at the same time and come ultimately from a cascade of events. It's like why women in this particular population of 35-year-old headache sufferers have thyroid nodules, why they have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, why do they have hypothyroidism, why do they have gallbladder disease, why do they get blood clots. These are You can trace them all back to a cascade of events that really always involves D and the microbiome. Great. I think um, perhaps we'll end it there for this week and we'll okay. have Stasha back um, and we'll talk a little bit in the next episode about what the man on the street or the woman on the street can do for themselves because as we've just heard, this is a complicated story and there's a couple of other topics that we'll pick out and talk about as well. So for the moment, Stasha, thank you. Thank you, Tatiana. Wow, wasn't that just the most amazing episode? For me, that whole story, it's just like a scientific detective novel. You just can't wait to get to the next chapter. I just love the way that Stash has put the story together. And I think it's going to be scientifically and medically and for all of us also a really, really, really important uh, body of work. I just hope that it gets out there more and hoping that you'll carry it out there. The subject matter is complicated. The science is complicated. Please go to Stasha's website, um, follow the link in underneath the podcast and also um, become a London Heal Insider. That's really your best bet at the moment because every single episode that we produce, if you are a London Heal Insider, you get all the links to the podcast every week in a little email and a set of extended podcast notes where we really detail what was talked about, what was discussed. You have it all in black and white in front of you. As this episode is a double episode, we'll actually release the podcast notes with all the signs from the first episode also together with the second episode. So, so you still have time, become a London Heal Insider and all of this wonderful information will just drop in your mailbox next week. And so, dear listeners, I hope very much that you'll join us for the next episode. That'll be a lot less science, probably not completely none, um, but a lot less facts and figures, but much, much more talking about the practicalities. So in actual fact, there'll be probably quite a lot of facts and figures because we'll be talking about dosages, what you can do, how you can talk to your doctors. If your doctor doesn't agree with um, the ideas that you want to go ahead with, how you can do this by yourself, how to do this properly and how to be supported. We're also going to talk about some of the problems that exist in the medical world, um, perhaps relating directly to this subject, but also with a broader indication. It's a really interesting conversation that we're going to be having next week with a slightly different tone. So please join us next week and wishing you always health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>